God says, no, David, you inquire of me, I'm going to tell you another way because this is going to be even more effective. But God, it worked before. Can't we just do the same thing? It got us the victory. God says, no, no, do it this way, David, and you'll have victory. And I love David. He didn't argue with God. You and I will argue with God. Hopefully not, but we can. We can argue with God. But David didn't argue. He submitted himself to God. Lord, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And that's a great place to be in when you just are obedient to God. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. After the first victory over the Philistines, David was wise enough to wait on the Lord before the second battle. It's easy for many in the same situation to say, I've fought this battle before. I know how to win. This will be easy. David always triumphed when he sought and obeyed God. The scripture tells us that God told David, you shall not go up, circle around behind them. God directed David differently in this battle. Even against the same enemy, not every battle is the same. Remember, obey God and leave the consequences to him. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he concludes chapters 4 and 5. I can take care of it. I'm bigger than you, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really glad. Because left to my own devices, I would make a mess of things. And David spent years, and God was preparing him during those years, And you've heard me say this before, but oftentimes the greater the work the Lord desires to do in a man or woman, the greater the preparation that is needed. Sometimes it's years. He prepared Moses for 40 years in the desert, unlearning the 40 years of everything he learned when he was Mr. Fancy Pants in Egypt. But David, it says in verse 4, was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So we know that he started at 30, and he reigned for 40 years. He died when he was 70 years old. That's still pretty young. But back in those days, that was a a good, good age. He lived a good, long life. And notice, and the king and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, and, and the Jebusites, remember, was one of those people groups that God had um, pronounced judgment against, again, because of their idolatry. So they go up to this uh, Jebus, or Jerusalem, and at the time, the Jebusites, these people that God had cursed, they're living on that temple mount, where before there was a temple. And, and so the inhabitants of the land, they spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. And so nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, 
And now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, I love that, he turns that around on them, he shall be captain and chief. And therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now when you remember in the beginning, I asked for you to write down First Chronicles 11 because it gives some information that isn't recorded here because the one man who did go up that water shaft, the Gahon Spring. There's a, there's a water shaft that was inside the city. It was encased in, in, in rock, and so you can't see it from the outside, but they would, it was the shaft that they would lower down pails of, uh, and get water and bring it in, and so they were pretty much impregnable, and nobody could cut off their water supply. So they had this great advantage. And so what Joab did, it tells us in First Chronicles 11.6, that it was Joab, his nephew, he was the one who went up that water shaft. And if you go to Israel with us, you'll see that very shaft. Because Charles Warren, back in 18, uh, what was it, um, 1867, he found this shaft where David's nephew had, 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 had gotten up. And, and there's just enough room for a person to where you could probably shimmy up the thing little by little and put your feet against the wall and shimmy up and put your feet up and you could get through it that way without even a rope. And Joab got into the city, and he became captain and chief. And so, that's what happened. (laughs) So why did David attack the Jebusites? It seems like it was an unprovoked attack, but it really wasn't. God had given them into the hand of Israel long ago. They were doomed to destruction, again, because of their idolatry. And it tells us that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, that these were one of the seven nations that God had told the Israelites to go in and kill all of them, to get rid of all of them, to purge the land from them. It says in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, But the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. And he lists them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. And, and that's what they were supposed to do. They weren't really faithful at it. And that's partly why Israel, the nation of Israel, got in such trouble. But back in our text in verse 9, it says, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. The millow was a, um, uh, a landfill, basically. And so David rebuilt the city, and he called it Zion, which means monument or fortress. It was the city of David. So verse 10, it says, David went up went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. And again, when you go to Israel today, you go to this place right to the south of the Temple Mount, and May of 2005, they discovered, just as the Bible has said, and there was excavation. We were there in March of 2005, and they were just getting started and uncovering Zion, right to the south of the Temple Mount. And it's, much of it is uncovered now. And you can actually see David's royal palace. And there's actually um, uh, there's, there's stones that they found that were, very, that, were, that were all over the place that spoke of David's dynasty, right there on the Temple Mount. i got pictures of them right here. 
got a video of it, which I, I didn't have time to get it ready for you. So, Hiram, king of Tyre, him and David, and actually David's son Solomon, they had this relationship together. And Hiram would send cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And so David, verse 12, knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Does that sound like a good thing? It was very customary for kings to do that. But the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, we, we, um, we looked at it a little earlier. We referenced it. It wasn't a good idea. God didn't want them to have multiple wives. It always creates problems. Didn't God create, didn't he say, and the two shall become one? Not, and the 24 shall become one, or the thousand shall become one. No, the two shall become one. God always meant for one man and one woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but a man and a woman. That was his design. He defined marriage. It's up for us to obey that command. Amen? (laughs) He says, Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon is the most prominent of these, obviously. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishema, Eliada and Eliphalet. And again, and these, these were different from the wives that he had in Hebron. And again, this shows how David's kingdom was growing, even though he was going about it in kind of a, a disobedient way. And yet God was with him. You know, God, it wasn't God's will that he, do, he did this. But God was continually with David in spite of this. So verse 17, it says that when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. Now, David had been confederate with the Philistines, remember, with king of Achish, of Gath. David was among their army just you know a few years prior to this. And now they find out that he's king over, over all of Israel. <laughs> so now he's got a problem. Now they're all going to come after him. You double-crossing traitor. You, know, you lied to us. And Achish, I can imagine, is going, David, you were like... A, a brother, you're like a son to me. I, I loved you. I, would, I gave you, I, I would have, you know. And David all the time is playing him like a violin in that time in his life, which I'm sure David regretted. A time in David's life that he would like to erase, I'm sure. But a very, a time that we can all relate to when we're in fear and in great strait, in a great strait, running and scared, and forgetting the promises of God, forgetting that God is on the throne. And David was in that strait. For a period of time, he kind of lost his mind, lost his bearings. This man who took down Goliath, and yet struggled to maintain a consistent witness 
So the Philistines also went and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. The valley of Rephaim is just southwest of Jerusalem. And so notice, David inquired of the Lord. Underline that, because the last time we see David speaking of him inquiring of the Lord was in the second chapter, in the very uh, first verse of, of, of this book. But prior to that, the last time we heard David inquiring of the Lord was after the... Amalekites had come and taken his wives and from Ziklag and, remember, burned the city with fire and took all the men and all the wives and all the kids, just took them captive. And that was really the turning point in David's career when he was losing his mind and he was confederate with Philist- the Philistines. And finally, after that event in Ziklag, when the Amalekites took his family and his, his men, all of his men, they took all their families, all their wives, their kids, took them captive At that point, David says, you know what? I've had it. And in verse chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, verse 8, it says that he inquired of the Lord, should I go and recover all that they have taken, Lord, these Amalekites? And the Lord says, yes. You go after them. And guess what, David? You're going to recover everything. You're going to recover everything because he inquired of the Lord. I love that. Do you inquire of the Lord often? It's important for us to inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord. He knows all things. He can do things that you and I cannot do. He can do things that are impossible. When we come to the end of ourselves, that's when God begins. He can do the impossible, and he does. He does the impossible. So David, verse 20, went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. These are the, the little gods that the Philistines would worship. They would carry their gods into battle with them. And you know where they learned that from? The pagans around them? The other pagans? No, they learned it from the children of God. They learned it from Israel, remember? In 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5, what did the Israelites do when they found the Philistines were coming? What did Saul do? They fetched the Ark of the Covenant, their most holy relic, and they brought it into battle with them, and they lost the battle, and the Philistines took the Ark from them. So what did the Philistines do? They learned a lesson. Hey, when we go to war, we're going to bring our gods And so that's exactly what happened. They left their images, their teraphim. They left them there on the field, and David and his men carried them away. And then the Philistines went up once again, and they deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And notice, underline this, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, verse 23, and he said, and notice what God says, You shall not go up this time. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Isn't this a wonderful thing about the character of God and about inquiring of the Lord? You would think that after that first battle, and they're, they're, they're coming down the same, same way again the second time, you know, many people think, well, we'll just do what we did before and we'll become victorious. God told us to come down and take them. We'll, we'll, we'll just do it again. It'll be the battle, 2.0. We'll just do the same thing. But David inquired of the Lord, and it's good that he did because God gave him a different strategy Remember, God is the best general. (laughs) He knows all about psychological warfare. He knows exactly how to get the job done and fool the enemy. And that's exactly what he did. The men at West Point 
We'll study these things, these battles in Joshua and these kinds of battles. Because they do these in modern warfare when they're on the ground. They do these kinds of things. God says, no, David, you inquire of me, I'm going to tell you another way because this is going to be even more effective. But God, it worked before. Can't we just do the same thing? It got us the victory. God says, no, no, do it this way, David, and you'll have victory. And I love David. He didn't argue with God. You and I will argue with God. Hopefully not, but we can. We can argue with God, but David didn't argue. He submitted himself to God. Lord, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And that's a great place to be in when you just are obedient to God. Just do what he tells you to do. Don't argue with him. Don't come up with a better plan. So David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them this time, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, David, when you hear the sound. This is sort of like a little signal that God has given him. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For, when the, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, notice, as the Lord commanded him. And see, that's why, and, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer because he obeyed the Lord. He just did what the Lord told him to do. Success is always obeying the Lord. Amen? Success is obeying God, even if it doesn't look right, even if it doesn't feel right, even if everything within you is saying, go this different path, and God's saying, no, I want you to do this. And you do that one thing, you are going to be successful. Because you plus God, you can accomplish anything. But when you, in your own heart, have your own will set, your own designs, you're going to be all alone. And you're going to be in deep trouble. So there's a great lesson here, obviously. Right? Inquire of the Lord. Be dependent upon the Lord. And, you know, as you read the scripture, and if... um, Gina could come up, we're going to take communion together. But, you know, as you read the scripture, folks, you know, read it with the intent of not just listening to it and thinking it's for somebody else. Read it for you. Read it for you. Say, Lord, this passage that I read today, can you bring this to life to me today? Can you create some circumstance where this will make, put life into it, Lord? And, Lord, help me to be listening and watching so that when you do these things, I will learn your word, and I will learn to be obedient to your word. How many of you want to be obedient to the Lord? We all do, don't we? Let's listen to his word. Read it and listen. Amen? Amen. And as we um, take the bread and the cup this evening, we know that we do this in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross. As Jesus told his disciples as they were taking the Passover and enjoying the Passover meal that last night before he was taken and crucified. Remember, he did something that had never been done in a Passover, and that was he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he says, take it and eat it. And as we're going to see this Sunday morning, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When we believe in him and when we take him in, it's, it's more than food for us. It's the very life of God. And there's nothing magical about these wafers. There's nothing magical about this cup that we drink. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done. 
And we do this until he returns. We remember his death until he returns by taking this. And we gladly do it because only the blood of Christ has set me free. Only the blood of Christ is able to take my sin and wash it away. Only the blood of Christ can make me whiter than snow. Amen. And so let's take the bread. And remember that same night he took the cup and he said, this is the blood, the cup of the blood of the New Testament. And a testament is something that is given when somebody has already passed away. In fact, a testament is not even in in legal action until after the death of the testator. And yet Jesus could say very confidently that night, hours before he would be crucified, that this is the blood of the new covenant. This is symbolic of his blood. And he said, do this as often as you can in remembrance of me. So let's partake. And I love what Jesus said that night. He said, I will drink no more of the cup until in the kingdom when I drink it anew with all of you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will all drink it and eat of it together. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, in the Middle East, it's it's very customary to... One of the most intimate things in the Middle East, other than human intercourse, is eating together, sharing a meal together. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples. And he turned it around into something and reminding them of what he was going to accomplish and what those things meant to him and what they mean to us. And we do this not in some kind of rote ceremony. We do this to remember, and how could we forget, really? But yet, it does remind us of what he has done for us. Never forget the simplicity of that one sacrifice. Only Jesus could do that. And so let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you died for the sin of the world, and you died for each one of us, Lord, for our sins. Not only for the sins of the things that we've done in the past, but the sins that we've committed even this day, whether in thought and and, and deed or in whatever, Lord. And we know that you've forgiven us too, Lord, and help us to confess those sins as we as we do them, Lord. Even for future sins, Lord, the blood of Christ has covered us. And, Lord, we have the provision, Lord, to call upon you, and you will never look upon them again. Lord, what greater assurance can anybody have on this earth than to know that their sins have been paid for? And that's why we do this, as often as we will. And so, Lord, we thank you for meeting with us tonight. Bless our day tomorrow, Lord, and awake us early that we might spend time with you in the morning and throughout the day and whenever it is that we have that time just to escape the world and hide somewhere and pray and read. Lord, change us. Continue to change us and remove any fear from our hearts as the world around us gets even scarier and weirder, Father. Help us to be the most sane, the most level-headed people on the planet because we trust in the one who knows tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And you've told us these things in advance. So we love you and we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.
I'm sorry, that concludes our program for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.